I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Joel Parker. And this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 23rd, 2012. Coming up, how can we best live with natural gas development? A University of Colorado team has just been awarded an NSF grant to tackle the problem. Here to chat with us about the study is Dr. Joe Ryan, the lead PI of the multidisciplinary team. And the lead of the study's air quality project, Dr. Janet Milford, is also with us. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, or more accurately, claims that don't conform with how science helps us make sense of the world. Today, we would like to wish a happy birthday to the universe. According to famous calculation of the age of the universe by the 17th century biblical scholar Archbishop Usher, he determined that the creation of the world began on October 23rd, 4004 B.C., making it 6,015 years old, assuming that there's no year zero between 1 B.C. and 1 A.D. To be more precise, according to the reliable sources at Wikipedia, Archbishop Usher says that the creation started at nightfall preceding the 23rd of October, perhaps making the birth date actually October 22nd, but it isn't clear which time zone should be used and what is actually meant by nightfall before the sun or indeed the universe were made. Belief that the earth and actually the entire universe is less than, say, 10,000 years old is called young earth creationism. It should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that this belief goes against scientific evidence in a broad range of fields of research, including astronomy, geology, biology, anthropology, and physics. Yet, in spite of that, a 2012 Gallup poll found that 46% of Americans believe that, quote, God created human beings pretty much in their present form at one time within the last 10,000 years or so. Now, admittedly, that doesn't necessarily mean that People believe that the Earth, universe, and everything were also created at the same time, but that may be a reasonable extrapolation of the poll's results. It's interesting to look at the history of Gallup polls regarding creationism. You can go to their website at www.gallup.com and search on the word creationism to find the history of the polls on this topic and the breakdowns by various groups such as age, political party identification, level of education, and so forth. The overall numbers have not significantly changed since 1982. The percentage of young Earth creationists has stayed between 40 and 47 percent over the last three decades. Also of note is that in the 2007 poll that allowed people more nuance in their responses, 66 percent said that young Earth creationism belief was tr either probably true or definitely true, and most of them felt it should be taught in public school science classes. The summary implications given by the Gallup poll state, despite the many changes that have taken place in American society and culture over the past 30 years, including new discoveries in biological and social science, there has been virtually no sustained change in Americans' view on the origin of the human species since 1982. The poll's analysis goes on to state, most Americans are not scientists, of course, and cannot be expected to understand all of the latest evidence and competing viewpoints 
on the development of the human species. Still, it would be hard to dispute that most scientists who study humans agree that the species evolved over millions of years, and that relatively few scientists believe that humans began in their current form only 10,000 years ago without the benefit of evolution. Thus, almost half of Americans today hold the belief, at least as measured by this question's wording, that is at odds with the preponderance of the scientific literature. In other news from beyond the realms of science, Newsweek's October 15th cover story declares, Heaven is Real, a Doctor's Experience of the Afterlife. In the article, Dr. Eben Alexander, a neurosurgeon at the Harvard Medical School, tells the story of how he fell into a deep coma as bacterial meningitis ravaged his brain. According to Alexander, his brain was completely shut off, but he did recover and awakened after seven days. And he says that when his brain was completely shut off, he had an experience that he says proves scientifically that there is consciousness after death. Here's a brief passage from the article where he describes part of his journey. For most of my journey, someone else was with me, a woman. She was young, and I remember what she looked like in complete detail. She had high cheekbones and deep blue eyes. Golden brown tresses framed her lovely face. When first I saw her, we were riding along together on an intricately patterned surface, which after a moment I recognized as the wing of a butterfly. In fact, millions of butterflies were all around us, vast fluttering waves of them, dipping down into the woods and coming back up again around us. It was a river of life and color moving through the air. Here on How on Earth, we certainly encourage our listeners to develop a scientific instinct, so to speak. And the chief act of science brings evidence from the physical world into contact with specific predictions of theory. Theory is a logical construct that is mathematically true and that relates cause and effect. But its utility as a tool depends on how well it survives contact with data. And this is one of the problems with Dr. Alexander's account. Based on the Newsweek article, there is, there is no data aside from his recollection. Again, from the article. All the chief arguments against near-death experiences suggest that these experiences are the result of minimal, transient, or partial malfunctioning of the cortex. My near-death experience, however, took place not while my cortex was malfunctioning, but while it was simply off. This is clear from the severity and duration of my meningitis, and from the global cortical involvement documented by CT scans and neurological examinations. According to current medical understanding of the brain and mind, there is absolutely no way that I could have experienced even a dim and limited consciousness during my time in coma, much less the hyper-vivid and completely coherent odyssey I underwent. And so there is no evidence other than the doctor's claim that he recalls an event that he says happened when he couldn't possibly have had a thought to recall. But when there is no evidence, no data, or any hope of data, there can be no science. And far, a far simpler possibility, at least with some possibility of scientific test, is that his experience occurred while his brain was still functioning. And while we still ponder the truth of things, we notice that Dr. Alexander's book, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, is going to be published today. When I looked last night on Amazon, the book wasn't yet published, but it was rated number one in professional and technical books and number one in medical books. Yesterday, in a court in Italy, it convicted six scientists of manslaughter for failing to predict and warn about a large earthquake in April 2009 that killed over 300 people. The geologists and seismologists, along with a public official, were sentenced to six years. The scientists include Enzo Boschi, 
former head of the National Institute of Geophysics and Volcanology, who was quoted as saying, I still don't understand what I was convicted of. The defendants were accused of giving, quote, inexact, incomplete, and contradictory information about whether a swarm of small earthquakes in the area of L'Aquila, Italy, should have been grounds for a warning of a larger earthquake. During a meeting in March 2009, before the big earthquake, Boshi had said that a large earthquake was unlikely, but the possibility could not be excluded. However, one of the other defendants, the civil protection public official, later said at a press conference the week before the earthquake that there was, quote, no danger. The American Association for the Advancement of Science condemned the charges, verdict, and sentencing as a complete misunderstanding about the science behind earthquake probabilities. It also clearly shows the conflict between, on the one hand, the demands of politics, policy, and the public's desire to have clear-cut yes-or-no answers, and on the other hand, areas of science such as seismology that tend to be probabilistic. There is one more round of appeals before the defendants would have to serve jail time. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. With us in the studio is Dr. Joe Ryan, Professor of Environmental Engineering in the Department of Civil, Environmental, and Architectural Engineering at CU Boulder. He's also the Director of the University of Colorado's Water and Energy Research Center. He's the lead PI for a project just getting underway to find ways to best develop natural gas and minimize damage to our environment and communities. Also joining us is Dr. Jana Milford. Professor in Mechanical Engineering at CU Boulder. Dr. Milford is leading the project's air quality task. Welcome to How on Earth, Jana and Joe. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, uh, you know, this is uh, you guys are, are going to be studying uh, fracking, and it's a pretty contentious issue here along the front range, at least uh, here in our parochial vision, here my parochial vision here in Boulder County, uh, may not be that way throughout the rest of the Front Range. But uh, could you talk to us first about how the NS, what the NSF was looking for, and uh, how your group was selected, and the strengths that you bring to the group? Sure. Uh, the NSF's uh, uh, request for proposals was about uh, sustainability. The the technical. Uh, term for our project is uh, the Sustainability Research Network. And, and by network, I also mean they were looking for uh, big teams to address uh, problems in a multidisciplinary way. Um, and two of the focus areas that they suggested as things that they wanted to fund involved water uh, and fresh water availability and quality and um, renewable uh, and sustainable energy. And um, we uh, had just gotten started with that center you mentioned, the Colorado Water and Energy uh, Research Center, and we thought uh, this would be a, a good candidate for their, uh, for their request for proposals. And Dr. Milford, what, uh, how did you come into the program? Well, 
the, the sustainability aspect with natural gas is particularly interesting because there's a trade-off. Um, we see the potential for natural gas to reduce air quality or air pollution emissions associated with combustion um, in electric, electric power generation. Um, but we understand also that there are emissions associated with the production steps in natural gas development. And um, interesting question in, in terms of sustainability is to think about the trade-offs between those two, recognizing that the impacts are actually geographically displaced and um, certain people may gain the benefits while other people um, experience some of the um, impacts. And so um, I think it was a logical piece to have an air quality component associated with this project. Certainly the uh, the Boulder uh, rules now uh, have an air quality component. The new rules uh, certainly of concern to citizens along the front range, the impact of fracking on on air quality. Now, your team is a multidisciplinary team, and uh, explain to me explain to me how you intend to attack this problem. I think your press release said you want to maximize the benefits of gas production while minimizing the consequences to the environment and our communities. Right, as Janet just said, you know we're we're trying to look at uh, natural gas as a uh, as a bridge fuel here, uh, and being realistic about this uh, that uh, we'd all love to move uh, further towards. Uh, more renewable forms of energy uh, as quickly as we can. But the reality is we have to deal with this source of energy right now. Um, and uh, I think the, uh, the multidisciplinarity and, and how we set up the task here was, first of all, to develop a, a framework where we could uh, evaluate uh, what we know, what we don't know, and, uh, and, of course, trying to move more into that category of uh, what we know over the course of our five-year project. Uh, and the, the framework is referred to as a um, social ecological system model or uh, a way of uh, 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 taking in um, uh, information about uh, the, what, what, what's referred to as ecosystem services, these uh, um, economically quantifiable uh, 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 ways that uh, we benefit from the um, uh, ecosystem we have around us from, from from water and air, for example, the, and how much value we place on them, and uh, from uh, energy as a resource as well. Uh, so that that framework was really a key thing in this proposal, and we think NSF uh, recognized that we had uh, uh, correctly selected that as a focus. Well, you told me that you had competed against 200 separate teams, so congratulations on the reward. Thank you. You know, this is a systems approach. And how well do we understand uh, the systems of the environment, the economy? What are the imponderables, and how will you overcome them? That's going to be that's going to be the big challenge to, to actually uh, get those uh, uh, values that we have for uh, some of these uh, things that we call these ecosystem services, or um, uh, and, and actually put them into uh, this model in a way that uh, is that we can explain well to um, the public. In fact, that's sort of the, the one of the other big goals on the on the, the end of what we want to do is to have a substantial amount of outreach, um, which is being led by uh, um, Professor Patty Limerick, the Center of American West, uh, to make sure that uh, if the public buys into the way that we're analyzing um, the, the scientific input, then there should be some faith in uh, in how the uh, what what our conclusions are about what kind of policy change there should be at the end 
how do um, you know? I, the question for me is: How do people make decisions in the face of uncertainty? And will that uncertainty ever be reduced to the people can make good decisions? And then, of course, you have the variety of outcomes that people desire. Weld County being different in Boulder County about their expectations uh, for the economy, for the environment, potentially. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of unknowns here, uh, and and we think the unknowns are uh, some of the uh, big difficulty in assessing uh, how people perceive the risk. You know, we can sit down and calculate uh, risks based on what we uh, what we know, what kind of uh, chemicals we assume are being used, what kind of uh, air emissions are occurring. Um, but the uh, the real trouble is uh, that the public has difficulty uh, uh, understanding probabilities and risks as some of the uh, stories you were just uh, talking about in the intro. Um, and uh, the, the example we like to use is if, uh, if you're living near a drilling pad and you're exposed to some volatile organic compounds and they give you a headache, uh, or if you're worried about living near a drill pad and that stress gives you a headache, it doesn't really matter. You've got a headache, and you're going to perceive that there's risk. Um, but uh, hopefully by doing the outreach that we planned, we'll be able to uh, get people more involved in understanding the science behind it and and have them have a better appreciation of what the real risks are. Janet, can we kind of drill down into your area of expertise? How do you, how do you propose uh, attacking this problem from an air quality perspective? We have um, really three main objectives on the air quality side. Uh, the first one, um, and in some sense it's, it's kind of the simplest because it really does focus fairly straightforward on technical aspects, is to try to improve the estimates of emissions. Um, natural gas production involves a lot of emissions that are um, fugitive in nature. They're highly dispersed. Um, they're often intermittent. Um, and, and so they're difficult to track down and difficult to quantify. So that's an area where we think we can contribute. It, it won't be the final answer, but I think we can con contribute some good information. Um, the second element is to try to explore um, emissions and air quality impacts of different scenarios of development. And this kind of gets to your question about imponderables, and we don't know that we can project the future of natural gas development in this country, but we might be able to identify some alternative scenarios and help people understand what the different implications might be. And then the um, third area that we're going to focus on in the air quality side is development of some hopefully inexpensive air quality monitors that can be widely distributed to communities that are feeling these impacts, whether they're associated with volatile organic compounds or associated with um, some of the nuisance and stress of, of being in some of these areas. Um, we'd like to get some more monitors into the hands of citizens in these communities so that they can play a role in assessing um, themselves what, what the impacts are. I, I like the idea of the citizen science approach. A lot of sciences are using this now, crowdsourcing their data collection or analysis. And it's a great idea because it gets a lot of the stakeholders actually involved and perhaps gives them an idea of what's involved in the science and the data collection behind the work. So clearly in your part, there there is a field work, um, at least through the citizens. Is there also... Um, other field work that you're doing in your task, and is it also 
doing models and data analysis, you know, is it all of that? It's all of the above. <laughs> and that, that's one of the, the really exciting things about this grant um, from our perspective is the opportunity to um, participate in all of these aspects of, of the scientific questions um, and to do it with colleagues who have expertise in each of those areas. Um, so within the air quality group, um, we have involvement from scientists at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, who are some of the world's leading experts on doing field work um, in the air quality domain. Um, we have colleagues from the National Renewable Energy Lab who are um, bringing expertise in terms of trying to think about um, future scenarios for energy development in the country and, and how those might play out. And then the community um, citizen science component um, includes people with expertise both in air quality sensing as well as um, the computational and information technology aspects of using that technology and trying to use it effectively and responsibly because there are um, some challenges in the, that domain of making sure that we're getting quality information back from the citizen science effort. Joe, you I had just wa just wanted to add, one of Janet's colleagues, uh, Professor Mike Hannigan, uh, is, is leading that personal air monitoring thing, and I think it's just worth a a minute to describe it. It's a it's a, a, a device that's uh, about the size of a pack of cards. Wear it on your uh, shoulder, and then uh, it can get plugged into a smartphone, uh, and you get both the chemical concentration information for a, a small number of chemicals that are important, like methane and uh, volatile organic compounds, um, and that can get downloaded via the smartphone with the location to uh, servers that we would have. That that's really a great idea, and. And uh, I think a lot of people out there will be very interested in joining in. If they wanted to be a part of it, how do they do that? We would uh, just, at this point, we would request that they uh, just uh, contact me, and I can provide that contact information, but uh, soon we'll have a, a website where that, where that uh, uh, contact will be available. We've been talking with Professors Joe Ryan and Jenna Milford from CU Boulder, and uh, thank you so much for being here. We're going to be checking in with them as their study progresses. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, and we heard a little music from the Dave Matthews Band. And last, but far from least, the team of How on Earth would like to say thank you to you, our listener members, for your support during our fall membership drive. We at KGNU got close to our goal of $200,000, but we still have a little way to go. So if you haven't yet had a chance to pledge, call the station at 303-449-4885 or go online at KGNU.org. We still have a couple of copies of our Pledge Drive book, The Violinist's Thumb, and some other wonderful books like Dana Sobel, a More Perfect Heaven. Signed by the author. And Craig Child's Apocalyptic Earth. And if you can't catch uh, the show, just go and listen again to Gregory Walker play the marvelous Paganini Caprice number 24. Head over to howonearthradio.org for How on Earth, KGNU Science Show. I'm